As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you for the gift of scripture, for the ways that it inspires us and challenges us. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds and souls to what you have to say to us today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while, he refused, but later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The writer of Luke's gospel offers us an unusually clear setup to the parable we just heard. Jesus told them a parable about the need to pray always and not to lose heart. Apparently, God's people have always struggled with prayer. Most of us are intimately familiar with this struggle, and we love some clear answers to our questions about prayer. How do we pray? How much should we pray? How does prayer even work? Preacher Tom Long says that Luke knew that the deepest, most persistent problem we struggle with regarding prayer is that we lose heart. We just plain lose heart. And so Luke includes this parable about prayer that suggests that prayer is a kind of parable itself. Like a parable, prayer confuses and confounds us. But also like a parable, prayer is something we return to again and again and again. The widow in this story had a problem she was willing to return to again and again until it got solved. Widows are staple characters in both the Old and New Testaments, especially in Luke's gospel, in part because of the way the Hebrew prophets talk about widows and their need for protection and care. We often think of them as particularly vulnerable and powerless. But when we look at the individual widows throughout scripture, we discover that is rarely the case. Take the widow of Zarephath, 
whose story is found in 1 Kings, far from a subservient, helpless woman, the widow of Zarephath is a strong, self-sufficient, single mother who reluctantly helps the prophet Elijah and then demands that he help her in return. As scholar Amy Jo Levine writes, biblical widows are the most unconventional of conventional figures. Expected to be weak, they move mountains. Expected to be poor, they prove savvy managers. Expected to be exploited, they take advantage where they find it. Widows, in the Bible as in life, know something about persistence. Now, there's a lot we don't know about the widow in this parable. We don't know if she is old or young, whether her husband died recently or decades ago. We don't know what she is seeking justice for. We don't even know if her claim is legitimate. All we know is that she will not let go of her demand, even if the judge continues to deny it. Not long ago, some members of our staff turned me on to the Netflix reality show, Lenox Hill. Lenox Hill is a hospital in the heart of Manhattan, and the show follows several doctors who work there, including members of the neurosurgery team. This is not a show for the squeamish, since the cameras get up close and personal with brain surgery and other medical procedures, but if you can handle that, it is remarkable. As I watched an episode that focused on the neurosurgery team, what struck me as so remarkable was not the brain surgery they perform, but what the team did before the surgery began. When Dr. Langer, the chair of the neurosurgery department, walks into the operating room, he gathers everyone there into a circle. The surgeons, the nurses, the students, the technicians, the anesthesiologists. You can hardly see anything under their protective gear except for their eyes, but that's enough. Dr. Langer looks around the circle pointedly and says, okay, folks, remember, human being here. Let's take a mindful moment to think about that and get centered. He might add a couple of identifying details, the patient's age, what they do for a living, what family members are anxiously pacing the waiting room while they operate. And then he invites a moment of silence as they remember that the body on the table stripped of all identifying factors in preparation for surgery is, in fact, a human being with all the wonders and complexities that implies. Last week, we had our first discussion session with some of those in our congregation who participated in the 21-day Race Equity Challenge. When asked what resource had been most impactful, several people mentioned a three-minute video called Before You Call the Cops. The video simply shows a black man telling us about himself, his morning routine, his work, his family, what he cares about and what he longs for. 
And it turns out he's not so different from any of us. As one person said, I realized watching it that if my car had broken down on the side of the road and this man came to help me, I would have been scared of him. And the video made me realize I didn't need to be. It also made me aware that if he was broken down on the side of the road and I came to help him, he would probably be scared of me. Remember, human being here. In our daily lives, not just in brain surgery, it turns out we could all benefit from remembering that. The failure to remember this simple truth is the problem with the judge in this parable. He fails to recognize, to remember, that the one coming to him with such annoying persistence is not just a widow, but a human being. Someone longing for justice which has long been denied her. Justice he is in a position to give. In the same way the widow doesn't fit the stereotype of a little old helpless lady, the judge doesn't fit the stereotype of a wise, moral, impartial arbiter. The text tells us he doesn't fear God, which means he must not care about religious laws, but he also doesn't respect people, so he must not care much about his reputation. In other words, this judge has no need for relationships, not with God and not with his neighbor. So the widow uses the only power at her disposal to get him to treat her as a human being, a power with which every three-year-old is intimately familiar. She makes herself a nuisance. She pesters him relentlessly until she wears him down. There is a Nigerian proverb that says that the child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down just to feel its warmth. History has shown us again and again, including in the American Revolution itself, that those who are overlooked and pushed to the margins those who are longing to be seen and heard, those demanding to be treated justly as human beings, will eventually resort to extreme measures. For the widow, this means relentlessly pestering the judge who has the authority to grant her justice. Persistence against every manner of resistance. This Jesus says, is how we should pray. The first time I visited my grandparents alone as an adult was after my first year in seminary. On the first morning with them, I joined them for breakfast. Now, my grandmother was a master of hospitality. Even this first meal of the day had an air of formality to it and the table was beautifully set. My grandfather said a short blessing over the food, and then we ate together. After we finished, instead of moving to clear the dishes right away, my grandmother said to me, would you like to join us in our morning prayers? We all joined hands, and my grandfather began to pray. 
Not the short and sweet mealtime blessing I've heard him pray over many family meals, but a heartfelt, detailed petition to God. He prayed for the world and for their church and for their friends. He prayed for their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren by name, and in some cases by specific circumstance. Now, it would not have surprised me before that day to have learned that my grandparents prayed together daily. What surprised me was that they did it out loud with such specificity and such profound simplicity. They joined hands and hearts and spoke out loud the concerns on their minds and the people on their hearts. Every day, without fanfare or formality, they engaged God and others through prayer. I had a similar experience the first time I attended a meeting of our church's prayer team, a group that gathers faithfully every week, either in person or now remotely, to pray. They pray for the people in our congregation who have requested prayer, but they do not stop there. They pray for our neighborhood, our city, our state, our country, our world. They pray for leaders of our government at every level and for church leaders everywhere. They pray for the church staff by name. They pray for strangers in need. I can't tell you how much it has meant to me since then to know that every week they come together to offer God these simple, fervent, persistent prayers. When we pray, we not only invest in relationships, we open ourselves to being touched, to being changed by our engagement with God and with the people we pray for, which is surely why Jesus commands us to pray, not just for those we love, but even for our enemies, for those we don't understand, for those we struggle to see as human beings made in God's own image. We are called to pray in the same way the widow seeks justice persistently, relentlessly, day after day, again and again and again. And although we may not realize it, when we develop a disciplined prayer life, a persistent prayer life, not just for ourselves, but for others, we are doing justice. Because praying for someone is a way of remembering they are human. Prayer reminds us, okay, folks, remember human being here. Let's take a mindful moment to think about that and get centered. When we lift up to God the people we love and even the people we hate, we acknowledge their humanity. And we might just begin to see them as God sees them. Remember, human being here. If an unjust judge 
can be forced into relationship because of a widow's obnoxious persistence. Imagine how the God who created us and loves us can be moved by our willingness to share what's on our minds and hearts each day, each moment. Imagine what might happen to our minds and hearts if we persist in bringing to God in prayer whatever in the world and in our lives makes our hearts ache and our blood boil. How might we be changed when we name before God the people we love and worry about and the people we cannot stand? Who knows what might happen if we accept Jesus' invitation to pray always and not lose heart? Who knows how our hearts might be changed by God's persistent, even relentless willingness to engage with us? Who knows what justice might be done when we take the time to remember that all those around us, those who share our homes and our neighborhoods, our cities, our country, our planet, to remember human beings here, God's beloved here, there, everyone, everywhere. Amen.